The force of gravity required for the hydrogen clouds to clamp together and for those stars to form uh, could have come from dark matter in the early universe, right? Dark matter was present in certain places in the early universe during the dark ages of the universe, attracting the hydrogen clouds where the first stars form. With the 21 centimeter uh, cosmology studies, we might be able to understand a bit better what dark matter is, and especially what was the role of dark matter in shaping the universe, a universe full of stars. Welcome to People Doing Physics, the podcast that explores the personal side of physics at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. Hello, I'm Shelley Liu, a postgraduate student in the Molecular Engineering Group. And I'm Vanessa Bismuth, the Communications Manager at the department. Have you ever looked at the sky at night and wondered about the mysteries of the universe? When most of us are just looking at those bright stars in awe, our guest today would be searching for tiny, minuscule signals that would help unlock the mysteries of the so-called cosmic dawn, when the universe went from dark to bright. Eloy de Lera Acedo is an associate professor of radio cosmology and the head of the Radio Astronomy and Cosmology Research Group. His background in engineering and thirst of learning about the big science questions have led him to the Cavendish, where he is involved in multiple international projects for new radio telescopes, exploring a very, very infant universe. So with Eloy, we talk about the universe, of course, and how it went from darkness to radiant, but also about childhood curiosity, choosing between technical and theoretical knowledge, and about convincing people. Stay with us. So thanks, Eloy, for being with us today. That's really great to have you. Um, we said in the introduction that you were looking for tiny signals um, in the immensity of the universe. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What are you trying to understand and how you're trying to understand? Yes, of course. Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. Um, we are looking for some of the tiniest signals uh, that actually originated in the early epochs of the universe. Um, we are looking for the first stars, really. How did they come to be? How did they appear from the darkness of the universe? And what did they do to the universe, right? So these tiny signals are actually not directly originated by those first stars. They are originated by the hydrogen clouds that were the, uh, let's say, raw material that formed those first stars, as well as being the fog that covered the entirety of the universe back then. Um, these radio signals have been traveling uh, for 13 billion years uh, plus, and they are reaching us on Earth today at a lower frequency that they were emitted. They are very tiny. They are buried underneath other many signals. We are trying to look for them, see if we can understand how those first stars form. And how are you looking for those? We use radio telescopes. so. As I said, these are radio signals, so they are emitted at frequencies around gigahertz when they reach us on Earth, megahertz, the same sort of frequencies used by radio devices, mobile phones, televisions on Earth. A radio telescope is basically a communication device on receipt mode, right? Hmm. Um, these radio telescopes tend to be uh, in very isolated locations on Earth, far away from cities and contamination from other sources of radio emissions. Mm. 
like in desserts and exactly yeah. so there are several we are uh, operating now that is in south africa at the moment in the karoo uh, semi-desertic area of the karoo in south africa and yeah that's what we use to try and capture these signals what's the point of um, understanding the first stars and and seeing the first stars what what does it I mean, I know the question, what's the point in fundamental research is always a bit yeah. um, useless, but what are, you, what are we trying to understand of our current universe when understanding the first stars and the infant one? Well, there are, I think, several aspects uh, there and several ways maybe to answer that. To me, there is something that is, uh, that there, are, there, are, there is the... Um, let's say, scientific aspect, there is the more sort of almost philosophical aspect of it, right? We are trying to understand how the universe could go from completely dark and simple, only hydrogen clouds, if if any, and then go to a, a realm of objects and, and stars and lights and galaxies and all the complexity we see today. And, and we haven't seen that process happening, right? From totally simple to totally complex, right? So that evolution process, that to me is it's quite enriching um, uh, in terms of our understanding of our position in the universe as well and, and how things exist and so on. Scientifically, we are trying to understand uh, basic physical process that took place in the early universe, some of them which we can recreate here on Earth, some of them which we cannot recreate here on Earth. So there are many things that relate to everyday uh, physics. One of the main ones that may we might be able to inform with this type of um, research is to understand a bit better the role of dark matter in the early universe. One of the uh, prime theories here is that those first stars came from hydrogen clouds that uh, due to um, gravitational collapse uh, created those first stars. The force of gravity required for the, hydro for the <clears throat> hydrogen clouds to clamp together and for those stars to form uh, could have come from dark matter in the early universe, right? Dark matter was present in certain places in the early universe during the dark ages of the universe, attracting the hydrogen clouds where the first stars form. Uh, we don't know what dark matter is. We have some indirect evidence. With the 21 centimeter uh, cosmology studies, we might be able to understand a bit better what dark matter is, and especially what was the role of dark matter in shaping the universe, a universe full of stars. So um, one of those radio telescopes is the REACH uh, one, which the acronym stands for. It's the radio experiment for the analysis of cosmic hydrogen. Thank you very much. And so REACH um, has just started seeing the sky now mm -hmm. and is producing data as we speak. Yes. Um, so I think it's it's been a, a long time coming. Um, how do you feel about that? Super excited. I think this is, uh, I think I'm speaking for myself, but hopefully I'm speaking for the entire team behind REACH. We are almost 45 people across different institutions in the world. Um, it has taken us uh, about five years now, more, six years, uh, since we started developing REACH. We have gone through uh, COVID and many other hurdles, and we finally have something looking at the sky. 
it is an experiment. So it is really similar to what an experiment is in a lab when you are maybe if you're a chemist, you're mixing uh, liquids and compounds, etc. We are doing that only that our instrument is in the middle of the desert in South Africa, right? We, what I mean is that we need to do a lot of tuning and modifications and going and adjusting things. At the moment, for example, we lost connection. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we have some people going, uh, I think it's this week, to go and reorient the satellite disk that is providing the data. But then there are many things about the little details of how the instrument works that we have to be adjusting little by little until we hopefully get to that first light. Yeah. Do you, do you have people on the ground on a regular basis or do you go to, like, from, like when you have a problem, you go from Cambridge to uh, South Africa? We have people in South Africa, uh, members of the REACH telescope mm-hmm. that are, um, that work at, in near Cape Town at Stellenbosch University. So it's about mm-hmm. uh, eight hours, seven hours. Uh, still a, still right. Yes, that's the nearest sort of big town. Um, there is a radio observatory, which will be the home of the future SKJ telescope, where there are people stationed there about 45 minutes uh, by car uh, from the telescope. Um, most of the things we are doing at the moment require quite a bit of uh, understanding of the instrument, so we need to get either the people from Cape Town to go there or in some occasions travel all the way from Cambridge as well. Hmm. Do, do, do you, um, you were talking about the engineering challenge that it is to build those kind of radio telescopes that are built to see those very, very tiny signals. Um, can you tell us what's the what exactly is the challenge? I mean, no, Challenges are, are many, yeah. but uh, mostly we can see these um, radio telescopes and reaching particulars, uh, uh, particular as a thermometer, right? We are trying to measure temperatures, mm. not only physical temperatures, but also physical temperatures. Uh, and we do this by looking at these very tiny radio signals. The problem is that these radio signals are not alone, right? Mm. There are all other sort of Uh, very similar radio signals coming from Earth, coming from our um, solar system, coming from our own galaxy especially, that are up to 100,000 times brighter than the radio signals we are looking for. That means uh, we need to separate them, right? And that separation process is very difficult when you don't really know exactly how that signal looks like, right? That's part of the fun. We have theories, we have models, we have estimations and predictions of how that signal should look like. And we are trying to use that and some other understanding of all these other contaminating signals to separate. On top of that, we have a telescope that is far from perfect, right? Mm. There are some uh, pragmatic considerations there about how you build a telescope, right? And it uh, does all sorts of things to the incoming signal, both to the cosmological one we're looking for and to the contaminating uh, noise signals. So we need to understand what is being done to those signals. Again, I think that the key number here is 100,000 times. Mm. We are trying to separate something that is one from something that is 100,000. And we know very little of both of them. Yeah, that sounds daunting, (laughs) but also fascinating, I guess. Yes, it is, and you know, just the um, the challenge of getting there is already on its own something mm. um, amazing and, and uh, a big achievement on its own if we get there, right? Uh, knowing what we might unlock if we 
finally detect that signal, that is even more exciting. So you talk about the sort of models and theoretical predictions. How accurate are they at this moment? As we're speaking from an experimentalist point of view, <laughs> uh, my 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 colleagues uh, more on the theoretical aspects of this might disagree with me. I don't know. Uh, it's very hard to say, uh-huh. right? Because at the moment the empirical evidence is very limited. Mm. We have been able to establish upper limits of the signal, which is basically to say we haven't detected the signal, but we know it cannot be larger than a certain amount Mm -hmm. because we should have detected it already. So that's helping uh, constraining those models a bit, but we don't have a a detection or with any level of error that we can say, okay, now we can um, constrain those theoretical models. They are founded in the physics that uh, uh, run the entire universe, right? So those theoretical models uh, mostly follow from previous physical uh, models, evidence, laws. Mm. They are compatible with the rest of of the physics um, um, realm of of physical laws, etc., right? the question of how good do they capture what's really happened in the early universe is the one we are trying to, to disentangle here. Yes. So, um, but let's rewind a bit. Tell us about how you got into astrophysics. Was there a calling? Did you know exactly what you wanted to study and work in? Um, not quite. I knew what I wanted to study. No, I think um, I always liked space. Right, since I was a child and a teenager, I always thought I would love to work on space. I didn't know whether it would be something more on the engineering side, maybe space exploration, or more on astrophysics, as I do now. Um, so I did electronic engineering as my first degree in Spain. And when I finished, I, that curiosity had not stopped, it had uh, grown. So at that time, I had the opportunity to start a PhD on uh, astrophysics, especially on instrumentation, right? So the focus of the PhD was astrophysical instrumentation, uh, already linked to this project I mentioned before, the the SKA telescope. And that's how I entered the field. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the challenges you faced while transiting from engineering or instrumentation to the more physical side? Um, I think that... The challenges I faced are, well, there are challenges both ways, right? If you study physics originally and then you want to end up doing experimental astrophysics, building instruments, then you need to learn about the uh, technical aspects, the engineering aspect of the radio telescopes. I did the other way around. I uh, studied engineering. I had that background and that base. And I had the curiosity also to learn about what we could explore, what we could do, what was the science behind. And that was the challenge for me. I had to catch up with a lot of these uh, these things, but I loved it and I, I enjoyed it so much that it was not even a burden. I, I loved the process. How did you do that catch up? Did you do it on your own time, reading and... It's re- reading a lot, but it is part of what my job was, right? As a PhD student, mm. then as a postdoctoral research associate, getting more into the field of astrophysics, reading a lot of papers, also books, uh, lots and lots of reading, of course. Mm. 
But so you 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 would say that your engineering background is is very in your area of research now is comes very handy, um, because of those telescopes being very sensitive. Extremely handy, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's not something I I, <laughs> I plan uh, when yeah. I got into this field, or I or I thought, oh, I should do engineering because then no no. But now I realize how mm. handy it is. I think the skills I have uh, with this engineering background. Um, are extremely useful. Uh, as I said at the beginning, the influence the instrument has on the science we are trying to do is huge, right? So understanding what the telescope does, how it works, how can we build better telescopes, um, it's critical. So mm. I'm very happy to, to have that background. Yeah, it's funny huh? because it's, um, it's very rarely that people just say, yes, this is exactly where I wanted to be and what I want and how I wanted to do it. It's always a, a, a mixture of opportunities and yes. just maybe not luck, but just like random decisions. At some point, at some point, you decided to go in engineering instead of pure astrophysics. And then that led you to where you are. It's, yes, indeed. It's, um, it's never really a straight line, is it? Yes, I should say just as a, as a note uh, that uh, it's not um, it's not, well, I guess it's maybe not the most common case, but it's definitely the case in radio astronomy that a lot of people have a strong technical engineering background. The mm -hmm. founder of the radio astronomy group in Cambridge, Martin Ryle, what really uh, set him apart from uh, his peers and everyone else was the strong understanding of the engineering and the, and the technology mm. behind, right? That's interesting. And that's also probably why we're at that stage in I mean, we couldn't be where we are at in astrophysics now if we hadn't had all this progress in engineering, engineering and being yes. able to build those radio telescopes. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Yeah, fascinating. Um, you're, you've been in two different higher education systems in Spain and in the UK. Um, tell us a little bit more about the differences that you've experienced between the two. So this really makes me a bit sad to say it because obviously I, I come from Spain and, and I was there at the university as an undergrad study, study student. I have many colleagues and so on, but I have to say that I found uh, very substantial differences that, that to me uh, they really uh, make doing research in Spain, especially in what I do, astrophysics, a very challenging thing. So I have uh, a lot of respect for my colleagues in Spain doing it because the limitation in terms of research funding it's is quite substantial. Of course, here I'm talking about Cambridge mm. because that's what I know in the UK and obviously it's not uh, also the mean of universities. Uh, but uh, there is also something very important, which is the um, <clears throat> being surrounded by uh, excellence because basically in a university like Cambridge, uh, all your colleagues, peers, they are at the top of their field. Um, opportunities just almost appear in front of you, right? Mm -hmm. You need to look for them as, as usual, but they, there is so much opportunity and uh, it's just a complete different field, right? I think Cambridge is uh, in radio astronomy undoubtedly at the top of the game. Mm -hmm. It has been for many decades uh, as in many other fields, right? Um, it's regarded as one of the uh, top places in the mm. world to do astrophysics in general, right? We have three different departments doing astrophysics. Um, 
Cavendish has always been a strong has been there since the very beginning of the field of radio astronomy and it continues to be we are in the uh, largest and most important projects and we continue to develop and thrive mm. and and I should say that I think one of the things that is um, helping us um, here is that we continue having this understanding of the whole process not only on the theory side or the data analysis side or the instrument side we try to maintain that understanding of of the whole thing right mm. And personally, in my research group, I try to enforce this uh, to some extent with my research students, right? Like, um, let's not forget that the little bit of work you're doing now fits in a much wider thing. Mm -hmm. And this is really something we always need to um, to keep in mind and to learn about. So, um, like you said, you've always been interested in science and space and engineering, but have you always known that you wanted to go into academia or was industry ever an option? It, yeah, yeah, no, that, it was definitely an option, especially when I had to, when I finished my first degree and I had to decide what to do, I interviewed for works in uh, industry as well, but I had this opportunity to do a PhD and it was just one of these, the, the little kid in me was like, you want to do this? <laughs> Actually, uh, it was my grandfather uh, helped me with that because he gave me that advice uh, when I was trying to discuss it with the family, right? What should I do? I have these offers and industry always pays uh, better than <laughs> academia. So there are certain things there. And he said to me, what do you like to do, right? What is it that you like to do? And and that really pushed me uh, to in the direction of, of doing the academic research. Yes. Um, so let's, let's talk about the... The public. So in general, we know that in general they're um, hugely curious about the universe, the, the stars and the galaxies, but just the concept of the first stars and that distant time just after the Big Bang. I mean, we were talking about 13 billion years, which is huge and quite difficult to, to, to comprehend. Uh, so those concepts are quite complex. So from your experience talking with the public and people in general who don't know much about astronomy, um, how do you get them excited about your research? Um, knowing that it produces incredible and complex data, but not yet pretty images mm -hmm. like they want to see. Sure. Um, I think it's, um, yes, as you said, the, the, I think the curiosity is there in everyone really, uh, what is out there, how did we come to be here, etc. In terms of how we engage as researchers, or I do in particular, I think it's a communication uh, challenge there. I cannot use the same language I use to talk to a PhD student or to some other researcher as I used to talk to the public because these uh, words are just not part of the everyday mm. language, right? So communication is super important. So it's telling the same story just with the language and, uh, and in a way that is uh, easy to understand by everyone. Mm. But so what, are, what do you think people are most in, mostly interested in um, and what are the things that people are struggling with, like the, the kind of yes. concepts? Well, I think the, the, the thing that keeps coming back when I talk to my uh, friends and family that are not in academia or in astrophysics 
is uh, grasping the concept of time, mm. right? And we said 13 billion years, actually more, 13.8, 13.7 billion years, probably when these first signals started traveling through the universe. That scale is, is just very difficult to grasp, right? Um, so it's always, I always try to compare that with uh, things that we know, such as if the history, entire history of the universe was a one day on Earth, this is when uh, the first stars will have um, appeared, this is when humans will have appeared, and then you realize that it's almost at midnight <laughs> mm. uh, when that happens, to give some of that scale, right? Um, there is always also the question about and what was there behind the Big Bang or before the Big Bang, right? Which is also something we don't know, uh, mm. but that is seems to be a recurrent question. Yes. Um, you said um, something about um, you used an analogy of the the looking through a fog to get the the idea yes. of a landscape. Yes, no, that's how I try to explain to the general audience uh, what we do. And it's actually, I think, a very good analogy in the sense that it, it captures the physics of the problem, right? Um, we are trying to see these first stars, right? Um, which is like we are trying to see a landscape, but it is behind the fog, right? If you have, uh, let's say, a village, right? That's your landscape. That's the first stars we want to see. But there is a dense fog in front, which for as is the hydrogen clouds, but if you had this fog in, in front of the landscape, if it's dark, maybe during night, you won't see any of the village, right? Um, the fog is covering the village, there are no lights uh, anywhere else, right? What we do is actually wait for that uh, sunrise behind the village, when you have the, the sun rising behind the village, then the shadows casted by the light from the sun in the village into the fog mean that you as an observer can see these shadows of either tall houses, uh, small houses. You can start to, to grasp what that village looks like. And that's what we do. Our backlight is not the sun in, in, in cosmology, is the cosmic microwave background, which is this first radiation that appeared in the universe before stars existed. That is the backlight. The stars are the village, the first stars, mm. and the hydrogen clouds are the fog, right? And what we try to detect and study is a re-emission of light from those hydrogen clouds, right? So similar to what the shadows of the village in the uh, fog will be. We should have started that conversation with this, <laughs> <laughs> this explanation. Sure. <laughs> You're looking at a huge amount of data and trying to find a needle in a haystack. And so, like you said, you run those seminars with your um, PhD students, tell them to keep in mind of the big picture while doing those little detailed experimental work. So have you, would you say you've managed to quench your thirst for knowledge and feed that curiosity from your childhood about space? Not stars. by a long way. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, no, I have created more questions, uh, I think, for myself, right? Uh, I'm extremely happy uh, at this point in my life in terms of the career uh, path I took and being able to answer or try to answer some of those questions. But I think it's common in science that the more questions you try to answer or answer or understand, the more questions you have. But that is not something that bothers me. I'm happy with that. 
Uh, I'm doing my best to try and answer some of these things. I really want to know, and I think others might as well. Um, what's the so which we were talking about which at the beginning that it was starting to generate data. So hopefully there will be some exciting results soon ish. Um, what is the other what, what are the other projects that you were talking about the SKA? Can you tell us a little bit more about that as well? Sure. The SKA is uh, is a super telescope in development. is uh, similar to what the um, Large Hadron Collider is in Switzerland and France, right? Uh, to radio astronomy, right? It's mm. an international uh, project with uh, I think more than twenty five countries involved, um, multi billion uh, euros project, and uh, it is uh, in the making. It has started its construction phase, although the initial steps of the project were the 90s, so it's a completely different time scale also for in terms of project. It's also going to be much, much, much larger, orders of magnitude larger than REACH because it has other capabilities. REACH is going to try to detect this first light from the first stars. The SKJ will try to make images mm. of those and we were talking about light. those pretty images, so exactly. hopefully. We'll have to wait for SKA for the images, <laughs> but hopefully, uh, especially if a, a telescope like REACH or other telescope makes a confident detection that we can, you know, convince ourselves and convince others that this is the light from the first stars, then we will know where to look better in terms of frequency and other aspects of the signal. So by the time the SKJ uh, telescope comes online, uh, probably by the 2030, already will have a much easier job mm. trying to make a picture and put some uh, information on where things happen as well as when which is what which hopefully will be able to answer so you were talking about convincing people that's you have like basically six years to build that evidence to convince yes um ska um people to look at specific areas of the like what what are you what do you need people what do you need to convince people of so we need to convince first of all ourselves right yeah we are looking for this needle in a haystack mm. right and it is super difficult we are um taking many assumptions about things that we need to verify as we go so we we need to have a very solid um experimental basis here on how do we produce evidence that really is convincing as much as it can be? I mean, in science, we should always be open to the possibility that someone else will come and provide better evidence and a different theory, and that's fine. We should be open to that. But we have to do the best job we can so that there are no questions about whether this is really that signal coming from the first stars or is it something that our telescope is doing to the signal. Um, many different types or many different ways of doing the experiment, trudging with the different assumptions, understanding how your assumptions and your models work on simulated data, on mock data. So we generate uh, what is pretended data from those first stars, try to understand what will be the effect if we take an assumption instead of another one. So when we run it in real data, we can try to have that confidence. Mm. Uh, so we start with ourselves, then we have to convince everyone else. Um, there is a project, uh, EDGES, which is an American project that uh, has an antenna in Australia, very similar to EDGES, 
and they reported a potential detection of this 21 centimeter signal, which is called in 2018. And they are still working on providing more and more evidence. There have been plenty of uh, communications and papers um, trying to um, validate, verify, uh, raising potential issues about that detection. Uh, hopefully, Rich will be able to show whether uh, you know things look a bit like what Edges indicated or different. Uh, it's a long process convincing mm. the scientific community. Excellent. We could go on for hours, yeah. but, but uh, I think that's all we have time for today. So thank you so much, Eloy, for being with us. Um, well, thank you for having me. Really thank interesting. You. Thank you to Eloy de Lara Acidal for joining us. As always, check the show notes to learn more about our guest research and our work at the Cavendish Laboratory. And if you have any questions, small or big, tag us on social media with hashtag people doing physics or send us an email. This episode was recorded and edited by Chris Brook. Thank you for listening to People Doing Physics. We'll see you next month. <laughs>